I'm Jim Minns and you're listening to Minimal. My guest this week is author, musician and retired Catholic priest, John Crothers. John Crothers, thank you so much for being on the Minimal podcast today. It's a pleasure. Pleasure, Jim. It's great to talk to you. It's been a very long time. Um, I, hear, I hear you're doing well in your retirement, if that's correct. I am. I am indeed. I can recommend it. <laughs> okay. I'm a few years away, but I cannot wait. Uh, <laughs> John, um, I wanted to have you on the show today because there was a book that you had written uh, some time ago. I'm not sure how removed you are from the book uh, at present, but it was recommended to the family uh some time ago, my history with you is that you were the parish priest of St. Declan's, which was my local church, for a, a good, well, over a decade. How long were you the parish priest for? Uh, 16 years I was 16 there, Jim, years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And upon retiring from St. Declan's and your tenure there, you wrote a book called The Clergy Club, which was a real fascinating insight into um, the clergy and uh, what uh, what you perceive are some of the sort of um, uh, aspects of cler- the clergy that make it a bit of an insular sort of, um, well, club, uh, as your title yep. suggests. And it was yep. just a real interesting insight. Um, was there any risks to your membership of the priesthood in writing writing this book? Did it affect any of your relationships in any way? No, there was no risks. I mean, you know, I'm, I've been in the diocese a long time and, um, you know, I've got a good track record, if you want to say that. Mm. Um, people know me. Uh, they know where I'm coming from. They know it's, you know, it's coming in the right spirit. Um, I'm, you know, and uh, to be quite honest, I have not had one negative comment about the book, mm. um, including clergy, not one, and I've, you know, I'm, I'm at clergy conferences all the time because, you know, while I've retired from full-time parish work, I'm um, I'm still involved in the diocese. I'm, I was up there last week for a clergy conference and, I've, you know, I'm still saying Mass every weekend. In fact, I said Mass this morning. Mm-hmm. I'm not on back from Mass. Um, so I'm involved in parish life and um, uh, the archdiocesan clergy life, if you like. Mm. Um, so I'm seeing priests all the time, and but I um, no, I haven't, haven't had one negative comment. I'm, I'm sure there's some priests who aren't real keen on some of the things I've said. Sure, but, you know, they respect the fact that you know that's where I'm coming from, and, and I've said it in a you know in a way that's not sort of um, you know, I would like to think not sort of combative, and you know, it's just it's it's there, it's it's in the public arena, and anyone who wants to make comments is uh, able to do it. So I haven't had any anything negative come back or, or um, and certainly there's no issue I've never felt any issue about repercussions or anything like that yeah well that's interesting it's, it's definitely not a combative combative book by any stretch but it, it is kind of radical in its um, in its approach to I guess doctrine. Uh, you know, like for uh, you know, yep. one of the many examples in 2011 there was a, a new translation brought into the mass which you highlight uh, that Seek that sought to interpret a lot of the language literally from the ancient uh, Latin, and yep. you know uh, there's an example where yourself and a lot of your priests were privately against this implementation. It would be ostracizing to a lot of the people who would come. It would send the the, the idea was that it would send the wrong message of people to att- to attend mass because it's going in sort of a, the opposite direction of what you and a lot of your fellow clergy were hoping that that the, the, the church would go forward in the future. But then when it yeah. was implemented, uh, uh, you mentioned that there was virtual silence, no no complaints, everybody went along with the flow. Yes. Um, see, I, I, the interesting thing was um, it came in, what, 2011 was, you said, I've forgotten the actual. I think in your book it was 2011. That's what I'd written down, yeah. Right. No, no, that, that'd be right because it would have been about five years before I retired. And for those five years, I never used it. I still use the the one that we'd been using you know, beforehand. The, the the sort of um, the English, the, the regular English of the interpret- regular English yeah. translation. Yeah, um, and that didn't get because uh, Cardinal Pearl was the cardinal at the time, yep. and um, it didn't go down well with him because I said it at the clergy conference that I was not going to use it, and uh, I wasn't using it. Um, he wrote me a letter to say, I always remember the the expression that he used. He said, "John, you have to accept." the ecclesial realities. And 
uh, but which meant, you know, move on. This is it. Um, but I, I didn't. But he didn't do any more than that. That was it. Um, he'd done his bit. If anyone had a go at him for having a priest not using the new translator, he could say, look, I wrote to him. I can't do any more than that. I can't sack him. What can I do? Mm. So I, I continued to use it right up till uh, 2016. I, I finished. And wh- why do you? Why didn't you accept the? Uh... Well, because um, it's it's part of that. It's just another aspect of that clerical club. It's like Latin is the clerical language. Latin is the you know the the language of the bishops, and, and they still you know as we know they still send out their official. Um, you know, correspondence and you know, documents and, and apostolic letters and all other things in Latin, and that's the language of the, of the priests. And this was obviously wasn't Latin, but it was a a, a direct translation from the Latin, um, which was making it. You know, it was just disconnecting the people from the liturgy. I mean, I just read the prayer, one of the prayers at mass this morning. I read it. And I, at the end of it, I thought, I don't know what this means. It was just so, it was just so sort of like, um, you know, convoluted because Latin has a different um, order of, of the words. Mm. So you, you get this sort of very convoluted sort of um, phrasing and, you know, clause after clause and all this sort of thing. So, but, but, you know, I just felt that, you know, it, I just wanted, that was a little stand. It wasn't a major stand. It was just a little stand that I took. And um, um, once again, there was no repercussions for it. But, as you, you know, you mentioned about how the other clergy didn't do it. And, and that's one of the problems. Look, the clergy, and I say this in the book, you know, the clergy are really good guys, you know. Their heart's in the right place. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's anyone goes into the priesthood really, you know, that doesn't have some sense of service and wanting to, you know, to you know, make the church, you know, or work for the church and, you know, help people in some way. Um, but the problem is they just get caught up in this sort of, what I would see as a, you know, sort of a false loyalty sort of thing. They have to do whatever the bishop tells them to do. They never think, well, maybe, maybe I should advocate on behalf of the laity in this case because I don't agree with it. Mm. You know, and, and that's one of the it's one of the really I think one of the sad things about it. That um, and I know these guys. I talk to them privately. Mm. I know uh, very few guys, just your normal average blokes. I'm not talking about the bishops. But very few average blokes in the priesthood think that the new translation is good. Mm. They yeah. hate saying it. Mm. Yeah, John, but they won't say anything about it because you know that they're worried about you know sort of um, being disloyal or breaking ranks and all that sort of thing. It's really interesting, the perspective of uh, of the book. It's something that I'd never really thought about in my, you know, sort of Catholic journey, the the perspective of of the clergy uh, against the laity as if we were two opposing parties. But it's something that you've really brought to the forefront. And and, uh, theology plays a massive role in, in, in the thought process behind a lot of the clergy and the clergy club mentality. And you, one example in the book is there was a Eucharistic minister and what that means for anybody who's not Catholic was somebody who, who would bring communion to a parishioner outside of the Mass uh, mm, and yep. to someone who couldn't attend Mass for whatever reason, health reasons probably, and they their, pro, their process would be that they would stay and have a chat probably about the footy. I think the example you gave was they'd give yeah. communion, stick around and have a chat about the footy. They were then told by, I guess, the powers that be that, you know, that's that's not the best use of the Eucharistic ministry. You should just, you know, be silent, mm. Give you know. And your perspective was, well, no, you know, if if love is the message, if love is the message of Jesus, shouldn't it be staying and having a chat is a is a manifestation of that rather than the actual process yep. of the Eucharistic giving? Yeah, because the person who's bringing communion is just as much um, Jesus in that setting as. You know, I mean, it's a different type. I mean, I know we talk about the, the Eucharist as, you know, the, you know, Jesus' body and blood and, you know, in that sort of yeah. sacramental sense. But I think, and I think a lot of people would agree, that the person, yeah, I mean, Jesus is present in many, many different ways and, and he's present in that person just as really as he is present in the Eucharist. 
and and so it's not just like bringing Jesus. It's like being Jesus as you bring the Eucharist. Yeah. So sitting and chatting to the to the bloke to me is just as much a, a, a sort of a sacramental part of the thing, or just a, you know, it's just as important in that person um, having a, that sort of experience of church as it is actually receiving communion. That's really interesting, and 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 I think that's where you know the book sort of highlights a bit of your uh, personal clashes with uh, sort of the history and the sort of you know grandeur of the church versus the practical realities of getting messages of peace out there. I think um, you know another another example that that comes up in your book is that you don't like being addressed as father. You you feel oh, that don't, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's right. Yeah, you feel that sort of being addressed by a title doesn't put you on equal terms with someone. Exactly. Well, it doesn't. If if someone's calling me father and I'm calling them Bill or Mary, <laughs> clearly you're not relating on equal terms. Mm. Mm. Why I is mean, it? Why is it important that that you, you you see yourself on equal terms with the lay people, as as the clergy calls us? Well, because we are all one together, see, working in, working together in the church, you know, to, to preach the message of Jesus. We're, we're doing it together. And once you've got, um, uh, like titles, for example, you immediately um, make it difficult for those people to, um, to work on an on a equal, you know, equal footing. Like, for example, a lot of the guys have come in from overseas a lot of the new priests, you know, they brought from overseas. Because it's a cultural thing. We're actually talking about it at a clergy conference just recently. But they call priest father. They call at the clergy conference. They call me father. Mm. And and I find that look, I, I accept that. I don't. They don't do it. I accept that. But when someone's you know not calling me John, that just immediately makes it difficult to relate. And I think unless we can relate, I, look, I have a basic principle that everything is about relationships. Life is about relationships. And if you, if clergy and laity can't relate and relate well, then the church is not going to fulfill its mission. Mm. So it's just about, I'm not saying, look, people still call me father. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't say don't call me father. Mm. I accept that. Well, that's just where they're coming from. It's fine. Mm. But I just say to people, Look, you know, because um, sometimes people need a lead, they will t- call your father until you say, look, if, you ha- if you're comfortable with John, I'm comfortable with it. And they say, oh, that's great. You know, and they call me John. Mm. But they won't. It, not many people will call you John straight off. Yeah. And, and they'll this- call you father. Right, right, because right. They, because they say, okay, you're the priest. You know, I'm going to call you father mm. uh, unless, you know, you give me a lead otherwise. But once once they start, you know, once you say, look, I'm happy. If you want to call me father, that's fine. But if you want to call me John, that's fine. One, they say, "Well, that's great." The relationship changes. Yeah, yeah. It's more personable it's rather than hierarchical. Thing. Yeah, absolutely. You're not you're not then relating out of a position. You're relating as a person. Do you think it's important that um, a modern church is more personable and approachable? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, but, because like the church, like the church is you know ninety nine percent the laity. I think it, I think it's that one percent. And and for non Catholics, the laity are people who attend church. No, the, well the laity are the people who are not uh, priests or bishops. Right. So the laity are, is everybody who's who's not a cleric in the church. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Many of them don't attend church, but you know. Um, um, yeah. So. Um, yeah, so so it's important, you know, that that we all work together, and uh, you know, we're we're able to relate on, um, you know, on equal terms. In- I mean, I, to me, it's just a, it's just a no brainer. I mean, yeah. why wouldn't you want to relate? We're all members of of a, a group trying to put into practice the message of Jesus. Mm. Why wouldn't you want to relate, like on equal terms? Do you have fears that? the inability of the church or, or, or a perceived inability of the church to tap into the regular everyday perspectives 
of people, and not just the Catholic Church, probably any religious denomination, uh, uh, do you have fears that that will not be overcome and, 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 you know, eventually or there will be a time when there will need to be some radical rethinking or, or do you, are you hopeful of such an event? Well, that's, that is the question. Um, look, I always try and remain hopeful. Um, one of the problems is, I think, that the clergy are becoming more and more um, more and more clerical in a way. Like when I went into the seminary, just normal knockabout blokes went into the priesthood. Mm-hmm. You know, all the blokes in my class, most of us were all just normal knockabout blokes who, you know, a lot of them left and I'm still close friends with those um, guys and, you know, I've done their weddings and I've, I've baptised their kids. and They left and they, they went and had... Um uh, relationships. They left and got married. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, they left, and most of them left to get married, or, or you know, just felt it wasn't for them, and then ended up getting married yep. um, and having families. Um, now, the thing is, today you don't get the, that sort of normal knockabout sort of bloke going into the priesthood. Mm. They tend they tend to be sort of far more pious, and um, I'm not saying they're not good blokes, but they just you don't. I suppose maybe because that sort of era has gone. Mm-hmm. You know, where, you know, every kid at a Catholic school at, at some point probably thought about priesthood because priests came around and talked about it and that sort of thing. Mm. You know, a lot of us would sort of were altar servers simply because we happened to be in the class, mm. you know, that was received communion. And then you became altar servers. I'm talking about the 50s, of course, because I'm 70 years old, yeah. 50s and 60s. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the... But it's also, so it's also such, becomes, it's, a, it's a lifelong commitment, John. I mean, is there a fear? You know, you were a rock and roller, you know, you were into the Beatles and like, you know, it's, it's quite amazing that you made the leap yourself, really. Yeah, it wasn't so amazing in those days, but it's probably amazing. A lot of people do say to me, why do you stay? Because they can, you know, they, they can see my frustrations with the, um, with the, with the hierarchy. Mm. Um, but I stay because I love the priesthood. Um, and I, I love the church, and I and I and, and it, I think the church, for all its problems, um, is worth fighting for for a better church. Why and, is and I think why got, is that, John? Think, well, because of what it is, because of Jesus and the message. I mean, the, the message of the church is a fabulous message. Mm-hmm. You know, the message of Jesus, the gospel message. Oh, how would you say it? It's, it like it's not always easy to put. Put into words, yeah. You know, because, but, you know, when I look at, say, this morning, there was about forty people at mass this morning, just a Friday morning mass. Yeah, I look at those people, and and, I, you know, I, I look at the message that I'm able to. I just said a few words at you know at the little homily time yeah. because it's you know, it wasn't a Sunday mass. Yeah, but being able to preach a message of love, and you'd say it every you know you're preaching every weekend, so you're saying it in all sorts of different ways. Mm. You know, it's a message that is perennial. It's a message that the world needs. Message of uh, love, and yeah. Jesus, and Jesus' message is fundamentally a message of love and peace. Yeah. Um, and that message will always be the message of humanity. You know, and I never get sick of preaching preaching it, and I never get sick of you know trying to work towards it. You know, to you know, to, for a church that that can say it better. And can express it better in a, in reality. I'm not talking about just words, but um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, it's funny, John, because you, um, I don't think anyone would disagree with that as a message of humanity going forward. Um, I think, and your book addresses it um, uh, quite profoundly, is that during your time in the church as a as a member of the clergy. Um, there's a there was a shift. I mean, you've gone into it with a singular idea of preaching a message of peace and love, which is the fundamental core foundation of uh, your your ministry, right? And yet, yep. and yet, from outside perspectives of the church, which everyone's entitled to their opinion, I think a lot of anti-religious sentiment stems from the corporatization or the hierarchical nature of such an establishment, which is something that you don't subscribe to. How, how are you uh, 
wrestling with that conflict every day where you, you are essentially under a hierarchical structure where you're, you know, told what the message is of the day, you know, for example, you know, the interpretation of the mass or some other issues that we'll get into in a minute. How do you reconcile your uh, radical beliefs of, no, I want to, I want to, I want to bring a message of inclusivity rather than exclusivity in my preaching? Well, well, look, I suppose I had an idea, you know, it, it certainly has its frustration and tensions. There's no doubt about it because I'm working um, with a hierarchy that that would say that, but don't really live it. They're more they're more concerned with um, with the law and you know you know the the structure of the church. Um, I suppose the things that that helped me in it. One is that I know um, it is the message of Jesus. You know, Jesus was not first and foremost about law; he was about love, the great commandment. So I am always able to, you know, in my heart of hearts, fall back on that. I also know that the vast majority of the people in the church agree with it, and you know, the, the laity and, and even some of the clergy, but certainly the vast majority of the laity, because the feedback that I get constantly, not just through the book, but just constantly, just through ministering, is always, you know, the same, you know. Thank goodness someone's, you know, trying to do something to, to mm. you know, about the church. This is the sort of church we want. Mm. I mean, it's like with the plenary, oh, and, you know, I don't want to get the plenary council, but all those submissions, you know. Yes. More than 200,000 people were involved in the submissions. I've read the summary of, of those submissions. They are, you know, Overwhelmingly about change in the church. Uh, that didn't end up in the final in the final agenda. That didn't come through because the bishops made the agenda. Yeah. But the submissions, you know, you, or your average layperson just wants a church that's more inclusive, a church that's more open, a church that expresses the love of Jesus, you know, in a more, you know, positive way and, and yeah. you know, less legal and all that. So, so I've got all that coming. Yeah, all that sort of, you know, um, to help me in my sort of, you know, battle. And as I say, nobody has a go at me. The clergy, they just accept that. Yeah, that's great. It's not like I'm, you know, I've got people ringing me up, you know, with nasty phone calls or anything. That's never happened. You probably would have been a different era, though, John. I probably would have been a different era. Yep, absolutely. But not now. Because I think even the bishops realise that the momentum is going for change. Mm. And no matter what they do, at some point they'll have to, you know, open up ministry to women and, you know, they'll ordain women's ministry to women. They'll have to be more, um, uh, change their attitude to, to gay and lesbian people. They'll have to, LGBTIQ community, they'll have to, um, you know, welcome divorced and remarried people back into the church. You know, that, these things, the momentum's all going that way. John, absolutely, and I want to I want to touch on those issues. And I think the best the segue is in your book. You know, you talk about I mean the institutional nature of the church, especially um, you know around the seal of confession, um, has sort of played a lot of uh, a role in a lot of the um, sort of negativity that's around. Uh, it's you, you've discussed it in your book. Uh, that's how the church dealt with issues of child sexual abuse. You know, if, if it was sort of, yeah. if it was said in in the seal of confession, your sins are forgiven as under the Catholic tradition, and the priest would get moved on. You say in your book, not not to the words to this effect, but in your own words, that's a standard that the community cannot accept, and as such. There, there, there has never been a proper reconciliation with the actions of the church in dealing with um, abhorrent uh, predatory crimes versus yep. yeah versus the expectations of the community from their leaders, the clergy. Yeah. The reputation of the church now. How do you? What do you do now? I mean, have you've, you? You and I want to get into your music. You address it through some of your music. You're 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 a musician uh, now, very taken up uh, with your music. The yep. reputation of the church, John. How do you juggle it? You know, it's it's a pretty bad reputation. It's taken all. It's it's it's. There's a lot that needs to be addressed and focused. As a as a you know, you're in the thick of it. How do you address it? Yeah, it's certainly like I mean, 
from a personal level, you know, at a, at a, at a sort of a, a personal sort of um, uh, viewpoint, it was interesting because when I first became a priest, priests were right up there with nurses and you know the the people who meet you and, and you know somewhere they talk, talk about you know who you are, what you're doing. You say you're a priest, oh Catholic priest, oh wow, I've never mm-hmm. spoken to Catholic priest. And it was like now you're almost not going to say it. Mm. You know, and that's you know it's it's gone from right up the top to right down the bottom, uh, and rightly so because of what's happened, you know, with the child sexual abuse. Um, yeah, I don't, and I think you might just touch on it. I don't think our bishops have yet um, made a an adequate formal apology um, as a church, as an Australian church. I know different bishops have said different things at different times, but you know. It, like the formal apology, say to the Aboriginal people, or the the, the government's apology to, um, you know, uh, to victims of abuse and, and those sorts of things. Mm. The, you know, the, the the Catholic bishops of Australia need to get together and formally, um, um, you know, with a, you know, invite anyone who wants to be there, but to formally apologise. You know, the, so until that happens, I don't think we're really going to. Um, to move forward too much. Um, uh, what, sorry, Jim. What was the other? There was a, an area. Well, I mean, how, like, well, pretty much you've just you've just answered it. You know, like, how, how do you, Chuck? I mean, like, this is your vocation. You've spent the better part of almost forty years as an ordained Catholic priest, and yet it takes a reputational hit. Like this, yep. that almost you know, it, 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 it aside, from, you know, it, that it's got a two thousand year old institution. It, this would be enough to knock any organisation into the oblivion, you know, and cease yeah. to exist. Um, yeah, uh, the church prevails, but it has has it learnt lessons? Is it going to learn lessons? I mean, um, will it? I, I think it's on the way. Still on the way. Um, look, I, I think unfortunately. Um, bishops still feel that, you know, it's, look, it's, um, we've dealt with it, we need to move on. I think that's still the attitude. Mm-hmm. We can't move on. It's now part of what the church is, mm-hmm. um, and we have to, you know, live with it constantly and keep working on it. But, uh, you know, just from, you know, just when I hear bishops, they try, they think they're saying the right thing. But I just still don't think they get it. Mm. And this is what this is your insular sort of messaging of the book is that there's not enough time spent with the laity or the community uh, outside of the confines of the, of the clergy club to recognise what the demands of the people are. Well, that that's a broad issue. That that yeah, that that I think is one of the real problems with the structure of the church. That that. Most of the priests, they go, you know, they go into the seminary. You know, it's a very sort of enclosed lifestyle. It certainly was in my time. I'm not sure what it's like. Something is probably a bit more, but still, it's a very, you know, um, it's very enclosed in many ways. It might not be so much physically, but you know. And then they go into parish life, and they don't have. You might say, "Oh, well, they're in a parish. And there's plenty of people in the parish," but they're not with those people. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. They're they're like. They're kings in their own, you know, little kingdom. Mm. Um, there's no accountability. Uh, there's no processes. If someone, you know, wants to complain about something the priest's done, I'm not, now not talking about you know, sort of, you know, abuse or anything. I'm just talking no. about, you know, the, they, you know, they, they've they've got an issue about the parish. They've written to the priest. The priest just ignores the letter. They might try again and just ignores it again. There's nothing they can do. Mm. I mean, they might go to the bishop, but the bishop's only going to support the priest. Mm. So there's no processes in place, you know, for um, you know for these things. So, so the priest just lives in this world where he never has to actually deal with. I mean, he may have a parish council, but a lot don't. But even so, he can just fold up the parish council anytime he feels like it yeah. on a whim. Mm. Mm. He just says, "No, there's no more parish council," and priests do it. Yeah, yeah. So, so they don't have the normal, like it's just not the normal experiences that everyone has to work with in a in a 
in in a life situation that you just can't do whatever you like just because you feel like it. Mm. You know, you've got to work with people. You've got to listen. You've got to try and compromise. You've got to go through all those things that everyone does in their normal lives. Mm. But priests never have to do it. They never have to compromise on anything. What I thought was interesting, John, was um, your need and almost your hunger, uh, as evidenced in the book, to constantly refresh your perspectives with outside perspectives. So you talk about a clergy conference in the book where the topic of atheism was addressed, but the speakers were ordained deacons, I think, or, 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 a, pre- or a priest. Oh, well, the speaker was, I think, a, um, a, 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 a professor or lecturer from a Catholic university. Right. He was a Catholic man. A Catholic yeah. man, Right. And you put in the suggestion that it would have been nice to hear from an, an actual atheist and their thoughts in regards to atheism to get a better perspective. Well, exactly, yeah. How important is perspective and why do you seek it out? Well, I mean, you, you, I think one of the problems is that, that, that in the church, everything is seen from a Catholic perspective. I mean, even atheism, as I say, is seen from a Catholic perspective. Surely, if you want to find out how people, you know, what atheism is, or you know, have a discussion on atheism, surely you would ask an atheist to talk. It'd be like asking, you know, like getting somebody to give a talk about the Catholic Church, who was an atheist. Mm. Um, like you're going to get a perspective, but it's not going to be the. It's, you know, it's going to be the perspective of an atheist about the Catholic Church, and we got a perspective of a Catholic about atheism. Now, to me, that that's just not common sense. Mm. You know, you, you need to find out from the people who actually understand whether it's atheism or whatever you're talking about, and and live it, and and can can speak from from experience. Mm. Um, and you know, I think that's you know that's sort of a, a broader problem that we see everything from. You know, a Catholic perspective. I know. Look, I'm not, the Catholic Church is not the only ones that do this. Mm. You know, I mean, this is probably a, you know something that happens all over the place, of sure. course. Um, but you know, if we want to um, understand, you know, you know, in this case, atheism, surely you're going to listen to someone who actually is an atheist and 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 has an experience of what atheism is, um, and it'll be the same with anything else. But 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 the bishops are look. I can understand they'd be hesitant to have an atheist speak to the clergy of the diocese because that's that's how that's how they think. You know, right. that, oh maybe this maybe they'll sort of um, you know say some things that these some of the, some of the guys might think oh that makes sense or I never thought about that or. Mm. Gee, maybe we better rethink this whole question of the existence of God. And that's right, it might rub off. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. And as I say, that's not just not just Catholic bishops who think like that. I mean, no, I, no. You know, you probably take any organisation. They're not going to get the competition in to tell them, of course. You know <laughs> what they think about their organisation. It's just, you know, that's common sense. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, mm. yeah. Well, is is there a fear? Is there? I mean. Is there a fear of outside forces? Is that what is that what fuels, I guess, um, a lot of religion or religious denominations? The fear of outside forces having a detrimental influence, and and, and so you, so the, the 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 decisions are made to maintain a sense of historic importance rather than adapt to the environments of what people are, are facing. I mean, like I wanted to raise this in an earlier question, but ev- eventually, and they might not be the church, but people do come to a sense, I've read recently, that there will be a sense in someone's time, no matter what religious denomination or lack of religious denomination you are, where you seek answers beyond your human comprehension. And um, would the church be willing to listen to perspectives in order to, I guess, adopt its mess, you know, adapt its messaging. Um. Uh, look, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, look, you know, I'm speaking very generally, of course, about a lot of the issues. Look, yeah. I, I gave a, a talk. Um, well, I might have been a couple of years ago now, but um, 
was to the Australian Historical Australian Catholic Historical Society, mm-hmm. and the topic of the talk was Catholic bishops, prisoners of history, and my the my argument was that um, what is the main that like the main sort of um, um, sort of objective when it comes to sort of arguing that all these you know issues is to maintain this sort of um, constant um, sort of church tradition that as they would say has never changed and now so we can go back to Thomas Aquinas or we can go back to St Augustine or we can go back to the you know the, the you know the um, the other you know, sort of theologians from the Middle Ages or whatever else, and, and and this line is still going the same. So that's like you know, for example, you know, you take it. Let's let's say let's say that the issue with um, uh, so so with gay marriage. Now the church never entered into or, or the bishops never entered into any discussion of the gay mar- in the gay marriage debate. It was simply no because. Natural law is what they work from, and that's always been the case. That's what Thomas Aquinas said, and that's what they said before that, before that, before that. Um, men or, or women together can't have children. Marriage is all about, um, you know, a loving relationship that has its its culmination in children. They would they would say, um, mm. and so you can't you can't have gay marriage. That's it. We're not entering any discussions about, you know the way people might look at it today or anything else. So the problem is that there's no openness to uh, maybe saying, perhaps we can look at this position a bit differently given, um, you know, the, the way that we see relationships today and the the, um, the fact of gay relationships and, you know, all the, you know, the... Um, uh, evidence that we see around us of you know long term you know um, um, you know um, relationships um, amongst yeah. uh, same sex people and no that no natural law is the answer mm. so they say it's absolute everything you know is absolute mm. now when you've got that sort of approach well you can't say well let's have a look at you know perhaps take a look at this from another angle because that's not what absolute is once it's absolute, it's absolute. Mm. The same with contraception. Now, I mean, to think that in this day and age that the bishops are still saying, the Pope is still saying, there can be no form of contraception whatsoever under any circumstances. Now, they're still saying it because they can't change it Mm. because it's natural law. They say the decision was made in, um, in the 1960s was formalised in the nineteen sixties. They'd always believed that, mm. and there's no point. You, know, you, you might say, "Well, okay, you made a decision in the nineteen sixties. What about reviewing it?" Mm. You know, as most most people do, they say, "Well, let's review it." You know, in the light of you know, fifty, sixty years of you know experience and knowledge, but they say, "No, there's no point reviewing it because it's natural law." Mm. Yeah. See? So, so you this that's the problem. Once you've got this absolute natural laws of approach to life, then there's no, you know, I mean, the contraception one's a really interesting one because it's interesting to see where it's going to go because, because you know, I think, you know, I think even the Pope realises that they got it wrong. Yeah. But well, it's, just a, it's, it's a futile argument really because... I mean, well, I, I guess this has to do with everything. It's change. The people change. Exactly. You know, yeah. how do you how do you maintain a perspective of being on the side of the people? I mean, look, there's all these sorts of things that pop up. You know, that the church you you mentioned it in your book that there's a there's a there's a bog down argument in you know whether or not the content of of wheat in the host that's presented at communion. Yeah. It has to be of a sufficient amount. Otherwise, if it's gluten-free, celiacs can't have the communion. That's just church law. Nothing can be done about it. It's all these sort of yep. ridiculous arguments that the church gets bogged down into when really mm. there's one message that you, you, you say, and that's just compassion, love, and peace. Exactly. Can I, Jim, can I just say, like, it, it's, the, the church's teaching and, and is more than just a bit. I mean, 
compassion, love and peace is at the heart of it. That's at the heart of Jesus' message. But I mean, it's, it's in a broader context of who Jesus is and God and, you know, you know the sort of preaching the, the gospel and that sort of thing. But the fundamental, it's about people more than about law. That's, that's the, the thing that the church doesn't get. Mm-hmm. The church is having, in fact, I think I say it, in that in that section of the book on the gluten free that you know the church won't allow gluten free the Catholic Church won't allow gluten free uh, altar breads, um, but it says it's it's got the smallest amount of wheat in it because it obviously feels a bit embarrassed about it. Mm. So it's got the smallest amount of wheat we can actually we can possibly put in it, and, and still call it you know normal bread, you know. And and then it says, but look, let's see if we can do things for people. Can we give them just the just the chalice, you know, can mm, we, mm, you know, yeah. can we work out some other way? So it's trying to, but the problem is the law must be satisfied first. And then the people And then it. we'll help people after if we can. Yeah, right. That's the problem. Yeah, mm. and that, that's the backwards thinking. Um, mm. Just on that, John, with the hosts and the bread, I, you know, during the pandemic I, I went to church remotely, as most people did, you know, on Zoom, on your TV, and yep. you can't have the host then. Is, no. So why is it such an issue to have gluten-free hosts in light of the fact that we've been pre- almost two years without actual hosts anyway? Yeah. Well, well, the, the 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 position would be that Zoom masses are not the ideal. That's what we did in a pandemic. But um, it was better than nothing. I know. I know. But given that people, you know, are able to go back to mass now. Um, it'll be interesting to see how many of the Zoom masses keep going. Mm. Um, and this is an issue like that that has been discussed at clergy conferences because some priests say, well, I've stopped my Zoom masses because I want people actually to physically come back. And others say, well, you know, a lot of people did get a lot out of those masses, particularly older people, people who can no longer get along or for whom it's difficult to get along, or even just like families and the kids are, playing up or something and they say, you know, well, let, let's just go on to Zoom this morning and we'll, we'll see if we can get back to... That's what we did. Yeah. So, so, I mean, so it was convenient, but, you know, it was, was, you know, like it was there, it was yeah. on the TV, you know. Yeah, but certainly they'd say, and I can understand that argument, that it's not the ideal um, way to celebrate. That's because the Eucharist is, you know, a crucial part. Receiving the Eucharist is a, you know, crucial part of what, what the mass is all about. Okay. John, you mentioned it earlier. Um, talk to me about the church 50 to 100 years from now. I mean, we're not going to be around to see it, but uh, do we have women-ordained priests? Do we have uh, gay, uh, openly gay priests? Do we have um, LG, uh, transsexual priests or even just, you know, an acknowledgement of the communities at the very bare minimum in the church receiving communion, uh, no ostracization? Yes, look, I think um, you said 50 or 100 years. I'm not sure whether it's going to be 50 years or 100 years or, you know, whether it's going to be earlier than that or later than that. But a time will come when um, all those things that you said will be part of the life of the church. Um, you cannot, like the, the, the women's issue, you you cannot keep excluding women from ordained ministry. Like the world's changed and, and the Catholic Church is going to look more and more um, you know, um, out of sync with just you know common sense and normal and normal life, you know, not good normal good living. Um, that will will certainly come, um, but as I say, I'm not sure when. Um, and I think also there'll be openly gay priests. I mean, because you know, there's the priesthood would have arguably the the largest percentage of gay people in it than you know compared to probably any other. Um, well, most certainly most other, um, you know, sort of uh, communities or groups of people. Um, it's a, you know, the, by the most conservative estimates, there'd be certainly a quarter to a third of priests who would be gay. Mm. Now, none of those priests, um, and this is one of the things that I sort of think about. I mean, I sometimes I think, why don't you just stand up and say, you know, why do we, as, I just stand up and say, Look, I'm a gay. I'm gay. I'm a good priest. Um, we have to stop talking about gay people the way we do. Mm. You know, we have to change. We can't keep saying they're inherently disordered and you know, deviants and all this sort of stuff. Mm. Um, you know, but no priest does it. Mm. 
Well, I know some gay gay Catholics who have to amend their practising to accommodate the church's view of them as opposed to the church making accommodations just to get them through the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very difficult. Mm. I mean, I, um, I, I, I was involved with a couple of scenarios. For a while, I was the, um, I had the role of the promoter of justice and peace in the Archdiocese of Sydney. And um, during that time, I, I helped to organise a number of, um, sort of conferences on justice and peace. And, and I remember on, on two of those occasions, we had. Uh, a gay person talking about what it was like being Catholic and gay. Mm. And it was very, very interesting, Mm. Um, you know, just hearing their sort of struggle. Um, But they were, you know, they were both openly gay, whereas the priests um, are not allowed to say they're gay. And it must be very, very difficult for them. Mm. I mean, I sometimes think about, you know, what if the situation was reversed, you know, in a world where, um, being gay was the norm, and being heterosexual was, you know, the seen as, you know, um, certainly seen by the church as not the way to live. And mm. and I, you know, like, and I was a priest, and I was trying to deal with that. I mean, I, be, I, because it's you know, your sexuality is so much. That, I can, about, so I, much part of who you are. I completely agree with you, and I think, especially, you must be feel so horrid in this day and age when um, acceptability. Uh, as a gay person has increased tenfold within the last 20 years even, and yet you still have to suppress that. Yeah. I mean, it must be horrible. Yeah. You know, everybody else gets to experience that freedom of of coming out and you don't – it's not not available to you. Yeah. At a clergy conference, I sit in a room with – Oh, there could be the best, oh, probably be 150 to 180 priests there. Mm. Um, you know, probably at least 50 other, probably more, would be gay, and but not one of them is able to say it. I mm. mean, it's terrible. It's really terrible. John, yeah. um, just wanted to, uh, to finish up on, on you, your journey now uh, in retirement. You are heavily involved in music now. You produce, write uh, your own songs. I think it's fantastic. It's a side of you. I kind of knew you were musically inclined. I didn't know that you would push it to such a degree. And for anyone who's interested, if you type in John Crothers, singer-songwriter into YouTube, a bunch of your uh, music is available to listen. Um, and a lot of the songs deal with past injustices that the church has not addressed, um, apologising to child sexual uh, abuse victims at, from your perspective as a representative of the church but not on behalf of the church, uh, women's roles in the church, a lot of these songs tackle these on issues. What is it about music, John? Why Is there something spiritual in music for you? Uh, look, it's been, it's, it, this, uh, the music thing's been interesting. I've always is that I used to play in rock and roll bands and back mm. in the late sixties and early seventies, that before in the seminary, and I loved it. Mm. Um, always thought I was become going to become a superstar, and never did, as we all <laughs> oh, as we yeah. all think. Yes, I've been there before. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, look, I, I used to always do a bit of music at different times. I'd go through different periods, you know, but it was so difficult during you know working as a priest. Um, because you, you are busy and you know big busy parishes, and it just it you know it's always something you just do if you can find a little bit of spare time. Oh or yeah, absolutely. Um, so anyway, when I retired, I um, I thought it was one of the things you know I was looking forward to in retirement was wow. to get back into music. And yeah. then I one day I just thought, uh, so I I thought I wonder if I could put some mine on YouTube. And I you know as you know I'm not um, you know terribly okay with all the technical stuff. But um, anyway, there was a a guy here in uh, Kiama who uh, was able to help me get the thing going. So I started um, writing songs again and um, and recording them. And a friend of mine here in Kiama, Helen, she does the uh, the video. We just go out with the camera and the uh, you know guitar and find a spot that looks suitable and um, play a little. Yeah, <laughs> a little, I love uh, it. I think it's fantastic. Uh, play the song and and, and we, we you know we don't do it live. It's just too hard. Oh yeah, sure, sure. So we, um, but um, so I started doing a few, you know, just a few uh, regular songs that I uh, that I have written and, and continued and, and started to write again. And then I thought about the church songs. I thought music would be a really good way to get the message across. Mm. And so then I wrote the, the one. The first one was the one about women's ordination. Mm. And um, 
and I got wonderful feedback from him, from you know, from uh, in America and and um, in Europe. Some people emailed me and they'd seen it, and um, um, and then I so I've done it. Actually, I've got the next song that's going to go on is one. It's called "A Little A Little More Love and a, and, and a Lot Less Law," mm. and it's going to be a church one, and uh, and it's also going to talk about the. Um, Issue of the gay issue and 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 couples being excluded from communion who have remarried. Um, it's not always easy, as you, as you probably imagine, to write songs about these issues that are actually you know decent songs that people actually want to listen to. Yeah, and yeah. Don't sound corny, you know. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's 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 a challenge. It's a lot easier just to write a just a straight song. Um, but you know, I've, I you know, I see it as a you know as part of my uh, ministry now. In fact, I see my ministry very much now uh, about church reform, mm-hmm. um, as well as helping out you know in, with um, you know masses and things when when I'm uh, when I can. But I, but church reform has always been a big thing. And with the extra time I have now in retirement, I'm able to spend more time on that. And um, and music, I just. I, feel, I suppose you ask me if it's a spiritual thing. And music is always spiritual, I think, for anybody. It doesn't matter what sort of music you play. But I think for me, I see this, the music I'm doing now, more as, you know, reform, trying to get the message out that we, you know, church, the church needs to change mm. rather than being a sort of a, a spiritual thing. They're not spiritual songs in the sense no, no, of that. They're not songs I don't, about... Yeah, I don't mean that. that sorry. I, sh- I, should, yeah. I should change that. I don't mean that you're trying to attract... What I mean by spiritual is... Have you ever seen or heard of the film Soul? Uh, no, I haven't seen that. So it's a brand new film, John. I really recommend you watch it. It's it's Disney. It's Pixar. So it's animated. But the book that it's based on is by a Jesuit priest called James Martin, and it's all right. about it's all about finding because uh, he was a Jesuit, which I'm reading his book now after reading yours. It's all about finding God in in sort of un the unexpected moments, you know. So the the embrace of a parent, the embrace of a child. You know, uh, a feeling yep. of euphoria that you don't experience, uh, and it doesn't have to be in a church setting. You could be, you know, surfing and you catch a wave, and there's this euphoria. Yep. That, yep. That's that's I the. Understand. So what I mean by spirituality is, and soul, the film sort of touches on this, is that when this person engages in a musical outlet, because he's a jazz p- pianist in the in the film, it takes him to a state of flow. And so what the movie and the book alludes to is, well, that's that's a that's God. Yeah. Mm. Do you ever experience that? Uh, well, look, I, I experience God in everything. Uh, I know what you're saying there. Um, um, you know, and in music in that, in that same sense. Um, and in reform and in talking to people and in, you know, um, you know, just, you know, being on my balcony looking at, you know, people walk by. Mm. Um, just sitting on my balcony and looking out and just thinking about life and reflecting. I mean, you know, to me, God, to me, God, this is my understanding of it, you know, which is not, certainly not, you know, uh, formal no. teaching, but, but to me, God is being. Whatever being is, and I love thinking about being, whatever being is, that's God. Mm. So, so if you can, um, you know, tune into being, you're tuning into God. And so, it, you, you know, it's basically life, I think. John Crothers, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it today. Thanks, Jim. I've appreciated it too. All the best.